guest today is Professor Becky Francis, Director of the UCL Institute of Education and formerly Professor of Education and Social Justice at King's College London. Hello, Becky. Hi, Ralph. So today the topic is mixed ability teaching and social justice and social mobility. Um, do you want to start by just giving us an overview of why you took an interest in mixed ability grouping as a, as a topic for study? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, I guess all my work um, as an academic has been looking at social inequality, um, different areas of social identity and how that impacts educational experiences and attainment. So gender, ethnicity and social background as well. And because the gaps for social background are so very profound in our country and this particular link between wealth and educational attainment, um, that's where a lot of my recent work has been concentrated. Now, some of those uh, issues are uh, reside outside school, of course. Mm. Um, when we think about the different resources kids arrive at school with, for example. Um, but some th- points we know um, actually schools can make a real difference. And notably, the gap, rather than narrowing as kids go through school, the gap for social background actually widens. So schools certainly aren't compensating. um, And if anything, they may even be causing the gap to get bigger. So then we have to think about why that might be. One of the um, very long-standing areas of international research is on different methods of grouping young people, uh, what we would refer to in in Britain as setting and streaming um, or mixed attainment grouping, mixed ability grouping, as it frequently gets referred to. And we might come back to this point about attainment versus ability. Mm. Um, But nevertheless, the international research is very clear that overall... Uh, there is no impact, uh, no positive impact of setting and streaming on um, young people's attainment. That's because for the uh, bigger group of higher attaining kids, there's a tiny benefit to be put in top sets. Uh, Whereas for the smaller group of low attainers in bottom sets and streams, there is a more substantial negative effect of being put in a low attainment group. Um, Now, the link with uh, social justice, or in this case, social injustice, is that, of course, we know kids come to school uh, with different levels of what is known in the in the field as school readiness mm-hmm. um, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds are already behind when they arrive in the early years at school um, of course then we might not be surprised that where schools practice attainment grouping we find disproportionate amounts of uh, kids from low social economic backgrounds in low sets and streams mm. um, you know consistently it's shown that um, they're, they're concentrated in those low sets and streams but we also know that kids in low sets and streams make poorer progress compared to the kids in higher sets and streams So those kids are actually subject to a double disadvantage, which Mm. is being, um, you know, pushed onto them by our education system. The very kids that might need the best help and the best practice we know are being disadvantaged by grouping practices that they're subject to at school. So that's why it's an issue for social inequality. What we don't know is why those kids 
make slower progress. There's lots of um, potential explanations in the literature and the research has been very good at sort of uh, documenting all of this. But what it's been much poorer at is making this relevant to teachers mm. and also, um, you know, providing consistent up to date messages or indeed disaggregating the different factors that might be contributing to these poorer results for kids in low sets and streams. So one of the things that we've never known, for example, is whether um, that poorer effect can be explained simply by a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, the, the, the message that kids get that they're thick or yeah. they're not good enough by being put in a, a what, what is frequently actively referred to by teachers as a low ability group. Mm. Um, so that, that the, the, the message that has both for teachers and students about their potential, you know, whether it's worth bothering and engaging. The self-identification and the teacher expectation. Exactly, working together for a self-fulfilling prophecy or whether we might explain the poorer progress as due to some of the practices which we know are associated with low sets and streams. For example, um, teachers with less subject expertise uh, being put with those low groups, um, misallocation which has been very very frequently documented and so on. I was going to say um, actually is it does the research tackle this, I mean, the slightly thorny issue of, of, of teacher quality in terms of, you know, in there's a myth, isn't there, or, or perhaps it's a reality that you put your best teacher in top set and your best teacher in the third set on, on what was the CD boundary. Is there any truth in that in the research? or it, It's hard to judge, I guess. No, it's not hard to judge. <laughs> Shockingly, there yeah. is, um, especially in the um, American literature, mm. Um, there are very clear associations with set level and uh, what they would refer to as teacher effectiveness. Okay. Now, the notion of teacher quality or teacher effectiveness is very uh, controversial mm. and debated. Um, key indicators are usually taken to be level of subject qualification, um, length of time in teaching, you know, experience and so on. Mm. But against these measures, the literature has been quite clear, certainly in the United States, that there is a, a very strong association with um, the most experienced and expert teachers being put with the high sets. We have also recently modelled this in relation to our English study and found the same tendencies. Okay. So again, in terms of um, social justice, social injustice, and actually basic equality of opportunity, mm. we would say that kids in those low sets and streams are something going badly wrong for them. And does it, there's also that saying, isn't there, you know, oh, the, especially this time of year when things are being timetabled for next year, oh, we don't want to get bottom set on a Friday afternoon or bottom set just after lunch. And there's this perception of, of behaviour issues as well as academic issues. How much of that is true? Uh, uh, is, there any high, is there a high incidence of behaviour issues in a bottom set, for example, or is that a consequence of the quality of teaching? I mean, the variables are huge, aren't they? Because what comes first in, in, those, in those situations? Well, if you put all your badly behaved kids in the bottom set, of course that bottom set is going to have behavioural issues. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you make an interesting point because immediately we're not talking about attainment mm. or, again, this notion of ability. We're talking about other factors, which, again, the literature has shown 
um, do have um, an impact on who gets put in the uh, low attainment groups. Mm. So you might not necessarily be put there simply because you're low attaining. There may be other issues as well. Okay. Um, and that really begs a question. You know, we come back to this question about we're referring to these groups, um, you know, it's, it's common practice in schools to refer to them as low ability, high ability. Mm. Now, I would say that that's problematic in its own right, given that we know that ability is not simply fixed, you know, it's, it's malleable, it develops and it mm. can be developed. Um, but clearly, when we talk about, uh, you know, the other reasons that kids are put into groups, um, parental pressure is another um, yeah. uh, uh, reason that some teachers will be very familiar with. Um, we can see that actually we're not talking even necessarily about simple prior attainment. We're talking about a whole mix of different things. And yet kids are being given the message that this is about prior attainment or indeed raw ability. And those messages have an effect. Does it have a bigger effect the earlier a child is set? So if you're set from a uh, reception class in perhaps phonics, perhaps your reading, perhaps even your maths, I mean, there are some schools that probably will set for all those three things. Perhaps the majority, you might, you might tell me soon. But um, is that a bigger impact at that age than it might be if you, your first experience of setting was in year seven, for example, or year 10? I, I don't think we know the answer to that. Certainly I'm not familiar with studies that have tracked this uh, systematically longitudinally. Mm. Um, nevertheless, I think that we would certainly hypothesise that there would be a cumulative effect, and that's something that we've been looking at in my Education Endowment Foundation funded study. Mm. We've been looking at this over two years because we assume that there will be um, a cumulative effect. What's really interesting is there is... Um, increasing evidence about the um, real um, shift in practice in primary schools, even in the earliest years, um, with increased attainment grouping, often with the notion of these ability tables, yeah. so within class grouping, that is um, really predominant in primary schooling now, but also increasingly active setting, mm -hmm. particularly in maths and sometimes in English as well. So that we had designed our project um, look, to be looking at um, kids starting secondary school in year seven, um, imagining that at least for the majority, they'd be being put into sets for the first time. And actually, that has we, we found that that's quite the reverse is the case. Okay. Um, the vast majority of kids in our study, uh, certainly those that we've um, actually interviewed and focus grouped, they've already had um, experiences of attainment grouping in primary school. Um, so again, there, there, there is desperate need for research, I think, that starts with schools, um, kids in, in primary schools in the early years and then, and then tracks them through. And do you want to talk a bit about this study? I mean, it's, it's a huge undertaking. I, I think you're nearing the end or about yeah, three quarters of the way the through. Um, do you just want to talk us through what the study's looking at, the, um, the funding, the number of schools involved and sort of what you're expecting to find perhaps or what you hope to find? Yes. So really the study was designed to um, do this job about disaggregating mm. and be able to answer the question, look, if, if some of the bad practices associated with setting for low attainment groups were stripped out, uh, would we see an, a difference uh, in kids' results and, mm. their, and the progress that they make? or 
is the very fact of being put in a low attainment group, you know, a, a significant message to both the kids and their teachers, which precipitates the self-fulfilling prophecy that we were talking about. Um, we've had two um, experimental trials. One is a fully powered uh, randomized controlled trial, uh, best practice and setting, which as I say, you know, schools are asked to um, implement a range of measures uh, based on the research evidence to try to improve the efficacy of practice uh, in setting. So actually try and set, accepting that the school is going to set and try to improve the processes. Exactly. Okay. To ensure that it's strictly only about attainment, mm -hmm. if we're calling it attainment grouping, that's yeah. what it has to be about, um, and to try to uh, mitigate some of the uh, poor practices that have been identified in prior research. So that's, that was one trial. Mm -hmm. uh, we also uh, simultaneously conducted a, a feasibility study, much sm smaller pilot study, mm -hmm. simply looking at the feasibility of um, an intervention on best practice in mixed attainment grouping. Okay. Now you'll ask me why we took such different approaches. The answer is there is so little research on the constitution of good practice in mixed attainment grouping. Wow, okay. In fact, there's been very little written on mixed attainment grouping at all, which is quite incredible if we think that the whole of Scandinavia has to do it every day in yeah. all lessons, you know? Um, but it's really interesting what different education systems take for granted and then what gets left unsaid. Yeah. So although there's this wealth of research uh, literature and evidence around setting and streaming and what is referred to in the United States as tracking, um, there's incredibly little research on mixed attainment practice. And of course, that again is, is, is really important for teachers, I think, because if, 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 if we're not able to tell teachers what the alternatives look like yeah. and be able to provide um, you know, really good quality materials, um, support and so on, why on earth would they um, feel able to sort of discard their practice of a lifetime and, and turn something radically different uh, without the research evidence or, or indeed, as I say, the materials to base that on? So that was um, really the motivation behind mm. our undertaking that feasibility trial as well. That's interesting, isn't it, you say that, because I guess a lot of teachers will be listening saying, but it's easier to teach in a set. I, I, the differentiation is, is, is less, the, 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 the range of ability or attainment, sorry, is, is, is narrower. Is that actually true though? Is it more difficult to differentiate in a mixed ability group than a, than a top set or a bottom set or a middle set? Yeah, there's a real risk, isn't there, that um, you could argue that setting and attainment grouping encourages laziness because, mm. you know, it's a, it's a sort of commonly said, uh, co commonly made point, um, but nevertheless a valid one, that every class, every group is a mixed attainment group. Mm. You've always got that spectrum. And um, particularly where there is sloppy practice in setting that uh, starts to look a little bit more like streaming, where, for example, um, kids are set according to maths and then put in the same sets for science and, okay, and, yeah. and so on. That happens really commonly across the system. Again, I've, I've made the point that right across Scandinavia and in many other systems as well, uh, 
all classes a mixed attainment. So clearly it's not impossible. Mm. And one of the things that we see uh, around the debate in this country is quite polarised positions depending on people's backgrounds. Um, often they've ha either had experiences with um, setting and streaming or with mixed attainment practice and these arguments about uh, whether one is uh, easier and more effective than another from a teaching perspective. Mm. Um, I don't think it I don't think the answer is clear. Um, but I do feel strongly that given that um, grouping by attainment is so prevalent in our system, it's really important that actually if educationalists want to change practice, then they do need to support teachers properly to do that, as I say, both with um, research evidence and with uh, exemplars and materials that can help scaffold that. Mm. I think um, one of the uh, fears that we've picked up in our project is that this would actually, uh, mixed attainment practice, would exacerbate teachers' workload, which mm. obviously uh, we don't want to do and teachers really don't have the capacity for. You know, the system's sort of creaking at the seams already. Um, and there's a risk of, um, you know, almost creating sort of three different lessons within a class and so on. Yeah. And that's not good practice in mixed attainment. Um, the model that we are developing are based on, again, the best practice that we have observed uh, both within our study and without our study is on um, starting at the top and then scaffolding back to ensure different sort of attainment points and exit points for every child in the class. Mm. And actually, I think that if that approach is habitual um, and developed um, across a teaching team, you know, your English department, your maths department and so on, actually this can be enormously effective and shouldn't necessarily have to create more work. But I think starting from scratch and overturning uh, long-held kind of cultural departmental habits and so on is, of course, a big undertaking. Mm. Um, so as I say, if we want to see any change, then we, uh, whether it's researchers, whether it's system leaders and so on, have a duty to be actually um, providing the exemplars that teachers need for that. Do you think the resistance is just a workload issue and, you know, it might be controversial to say, but do you think some teachers think they're less of a teacher for the lower attainment students? And I, I'm not trying to criticise teachers in this way, but is there a feeling that, oh, I can really engage with my subject if I'm top set, you know, I can really get some good conversations going and, you know, I don't really want to be doing the sort of the more, the more basic stuff. Is that an issue? You're, it's, it's a really good point. Um, certainly there is evidence of, of um, teachers being rewarded by being placed with the high sets mm. and, and, and streams, um, both from the UK uh, in, in relation to our study um, and from the wider literature in the United States as well. We interestingly found um, that more senior teachers, um, teachers in, from the senior leadership team and so on, were more likely to be uh, teaching high sets as well. Right. Um, so I think that there is a trend there. Um, obviously, I'm sure there are always exceptions, and some uh, both some schools were genuinely seem to have um, policies where they were trying to put 
particular subject experts and great teachers with low SATs. Um, and of course, again, it's, that's very hard then to sort of quantitatively measure because mm. we, we, we know that that practice exists, but we don't know the effect that it has. Um, but for the most part, we see these, the, these trends where whether it's that teachers are being a sort of actively rewarded and retained by being um, put with the top sets okay. or whether it's um, simply a sort of assumption that the subject's experts should be going with the with with the high sets that that trend certainly seems to play out so again um what we found was was not just that te- that trend around um the deployment of teachers but also um from students the constant complaint that they were taught differently oh, if they were in low sets and this particularly you know was noticeable where you had kids who might be in say a higher set for maths and a lower set for english or whatever so were able to sort of compare and contrast what they saw within their own um experience mm. um and a, co- a, a continual theme of um, students feeling that they were being talked down to in low sets, that that the uh, curriculum was dumbed down for them, that they didn't have independent learning, um, that they weren't being pushed and challenged, and often the active use of the word babying, babyish, and so on. So there almost seemed to be, um, you know, an issue about feelings of of respect and... um, students feeling devalued as well Um, so that's less than about necessarily the quality of the teacher Mm. as the actual pedagogy and approach that's being um, uh, uh, um, deployed with these young people. That's fascinating isn't it because it it sort of chimes with what Rob Webster's study in terms of what the experience of children with SEN is in the system and I think he was saying that there's a there is again a perception that if you have sen then so you should be bottom set. But there's actually with a lot of the sen there's no real correlation between at- ability. Sorry, there is sometimes with attainment, but that's possibly as a as a result of the the setting process. But with with ability there there is capacity there. So do you find in the research again sort of a, a skew towards sen in bottom? sets that's not necessarily representative of of ability. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. And it's really encouraging to me as director of um, UCL Institute of Education that we are developing across the piece um, a range of different, very large scale studies uh, looking at this issue from different angles. Mm. Rob Webster's is is, is one of them. and these are important issues, and they also make uh, the question very, very complex. Um, one of the uh, strong refrains when we've demanded within our best practice and setting trial um, high expectations and a high quality curriculum to pupils whatever they're set Mm. so including the low set there's often been a press back from teachers about yes but my low set group contains a complete uh, mix of um, attainment levels including some kids who are SEN Um, again we don't know what those designations are or mean um, definitely there is often a sort of projection onto oh well they're SEN and then a set of assumptions that are associated with that 
Um, but I think this points to the kind of challenge, uh, coming back a little bit to what we were saying earlier about behavior as well. Mm. If you put a load of kids all together that are just seen as somehow sort of challenging and difficult by the system, um, inevitably there's going to be a whole range of different characteristics exemplified by, among those kids. They may not fit together as a group at all. Yeah. And immediately you can start seeing some key, you know, clear hypothesis about why then uh, there may not be great efficacy and great progress made for those kids in trying to sort of teach them all together as a bundle. Um, I think that that casts more profound questions for the notion of setting across the board. Um, ultimately, is this something that works nicely for the high attainment groups, might work okay for middle attainment, but then necessarily creates a load of um, real conceptual and experiential challenges for what ends up as being the bottom group. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I think that's right. Um, let alone the um, you know myriad issues that the, the the literature has shown about once kids get put in a low attainment group they hardly ever move you know it's not actually based on uh, rigorous retesting and moving kids around if they if, if they're um, succeeding better than the set that they're that they've originally been placed in and so on and I guess another of the um, issues that our study has shown very clearly is why some of those things might be the case mm. so it's again we we have this um, you look at the research literature and think oh, you know there are these kids being misallocated and then they're never moved they stay in the, the set that they've been placed in in, in any case, irrespective of their attainment, what terrible practice. But then when we actually talk to teachers, do the research on the ground in schools and so on, we can see why some of those things come to pass. So for example, a lot of this is built around the timetable. Mm. Um, actually, it's quite difficult when you've got sort of a set mechanism often worked out on a computer about kids uh, in a class of 30, you know, in classes of 30 uh, mapped against um, a timetable of loads of different subject disciplines, etc, etc. It becomes quite complicated to have proper fluidity uh, to be able to move kids around regularly. And then on top of those sort of pragmatic questions, we have the, the sort of wider cultural and environmental questions. Uh, if I come back to parents there, yeah. uh, that would be a, you know, a, a clear example. Why is my son being dropped from top to middle set? Uh, exactly. Yeah. And we know, again, that it will be certain parents, notably uh, sharp-elbowed middle-class parents, who will be most directly on the case here, up at the school, if there's any prospect of their children being moved down or actively campaigning, of course, for them to be moved up. Well, that's an interesting um, point, isn't it? Because a lot of the people who advocate for setting talk about and they, they're, they're sort of the caveat. They said, oh, of course, we, you know, we move children around in that. And you're thinking, well, for every child you move up, surely you're moving a child down. And are we missing really important factors of motivation, of engagement, of self-perception? of metacognition and what I mean, what's yeah. happening in that process. I mean, in your you talked before about best practice setting. Is fluidity between the sets part of best practice? And if so, how is that done effectively? It is part of best practice. Um, all the um, you know stipulations for schools were based on um, prior research evidence and also 
absolute sort of foregrounding of the conceptual premise that this is about attainment. If it's called attainment grouping, mm. it needs to be about actual attainment. And that's the, that, that, that's the rationale for setting that yeah. you have kids of a, a, you know, a similar spectrum of abilities in different sets. Mm. So if it's not achieving that, it, it, it clearly has no efficacy at all. Yeah. So really, um, the, the uh, intervention was very much um, centered on that. But what we have learned through the intervention and through the uh, lack of um, what we researchers would call fidelity, you know, the difficulty for schools to actually enact what we asked of them, mm. is why the multiple reasons that it is so difficult for schools to enact uh, what we would have termed best practice and setting. Mm. Um, and there were a whole range of reasons, as, as you see, yeah. uh, that, that schools weren't able to do what we asked them. Yeah. Uh, things that we wouldn't have expected. I mean, the dominance of the timetable. Yeah. I characterise this as the tail wagging the dog. Um, you know, is this about the kids? Is this, is this about learning? Or is it about some spreadsheet uh, called the timetable? Does, does it fit the puzzle? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And yet, of course, pragmatically we know um, how difficult this is for schools to get right on the ground. Um, if I give you another example of a, of, of a headache for schools that I think just um, is an inevitable feature of setting, um, we've, we've modelled the, um, the, the data on kids' prior attainment um, and then looking at where they're set in terms of potential misallocation. Well, if you think about it, you, you can fit 30 in a class, say. Mm. If you have at the bottom of that, you know, that, that uh, attainment range, um, let's say 10 kids with the same scores, but you've only got five seats left in your class, you're going to have to decide five kids go into your top set and five go down to the middle, even though there's no difference in their prior attainment. Mm. And, of course, that's where we would start questioning let alone the, the genuine misallocation that we see across the system and which, are, again, our study has shown, uh, you know, just again compounding the literature here. Um, we, there, there's this um, mechanistic challenge which requires inevitably uh, a teacher judgment about, you know, for the kids on the margins, which go into a top set, which go into the lower mm. set. Um, and surely that is where we would start to see bias inevitably uh, coming into the system as well. So there's a genuine sort of mechanistic problem, I think, for schools in, in, in this notion of um, fair or best practice in setting. Do you think wrapped into that there is a, a peer effect, if you, if, you want, if you want to call it that? So in a top set, you could have someone who's already quite nervous about their attainment, but is, is attaining, put against someone quite high achievers and then they are either brought up by that or or lose confidence because they're not quite reaching that and then you could sort of take that model and put it in each of those sets is there any work around whether that is a factor in in achieve uh, attainment sorry there is evidence including from the oecd that social mixing uh in including uh, attainment mixing but also social background mixing is beneficial for all kids in a class mm. um and we also know um prior studies have shown that where you have uh kids with the same attainment levels some get placed in the higher attainment group and some get placed in a lower attainment group 
the higher the kids that get placed in the higher attainment group make better progress. Okay. So you can see that there is an impact there. Um, presumably for a range of reasons. Um, it might be you know, the boost to self-confidence, it might be the high expectations or the quality of the teacher and so forth. Um, but that that does have a positive impact. Do the kids know, do you think? So if you're, if you're a group of friends and you know your two friends have gone to the top set and you're in the middle set, and do you think the, the child will know, well, I'm about the same ability as them or attainment as them. Why are they in that set and I'm in this set? What does that say? Do, do you begin, does that child begin to get a, a sense of how the school views them, I guess, is the question. Well, I think they absolutely do get a sense of how the school views them, um, and it does have an impact on their self-esteem and their self-confidence. And again, this is uh, something that our project has measured. Um, we found that um, there was a correlation, but, you know, small but significant, statistically significant correlation between um, students' self-confidence absolutely correlated with their set level. Um, so that, that you might say, well, that's natural because if you're not much good at maths uh, and you're in the low attainment group, of course, you won't have very strong self-confidence at maths. What was interesting is that we found that correlation uh, between um, set group and levels of self-confidence, both for maths and for English, uh, the, the subjects that students were set in, but also for their general self-confidence across the board. Okay. So basically, um, there did seem to be a self-fulfilling prophecy precipitated for students in the impact of their set groups, you know, for the subjects that they were set in, then having a knock-on effect for their um, self-confidence in learning more broadly, which I think is, is disturbing for us as educationalists. Mm. Um, we also know from the qualitative side of the work that students were often uh, very frustrated or distressed by the set group that they'd been placed in. That's not to say, though, I wouldn't want to suggest for a minute that this is true for every child um, or indeed that it's completely straightforward. Um, you know, turning that evidence on its head, one of the things that's surprising to me, given the, the, the very strong messages children are receiving about their, I'm putting inverted commas around, ability mm. uh, by, put, by their placement in these different attainment groups, um, the resilience of some children uh, not to seem to worry about that. Okay, yeah. um, and of course, um, there were, there's also good evidence um, in the prior literature that not all kids love being in a top set. Um, you know, again, the, the, some might prefer to be doing thriving uh, at the top of set two rather mm. than struggling in the bottom of set one or, and, and, and so on. So um, it's not uh, simply clear cut. Um, and I wouldn't want to sound like somebody that was sort of trying to simply argue for a particular set of practices, um, you know, for, I don't know, ideological purposes. Um, it, it is a, a, a complex issue and it may be that there are uh, benefits and weaknesses to every approach we take to uh, uh, grouping students. Um, what I'm trying to get to is the best the most effective and the fairest practices, and particularly those that don't actively disadvantage uh, kids from low socioeconomic backgrounds, which we can see clearly is what's happening at the moment. Do you, um, in your mixed ability 
uh, grouping in the study, um, and I know you said there's no, there's not a, well, hardly any research in this area. Is the way you pick the mixed ability group important in the sense of do you just use their tutor group, which has been probably done loosely on having one or two friends from primary school <laughs> in year seven when they entered the school, or is there a real? You know, does the school have to really think about the blend of students in a mixed ability group in the same way as they would a, a set? It's a really good question. Um, we asked um, schools to think to, to ensure that um, in the mixed attainment trial, we asked schools to make sure that each group was uh, reflected a proper balance um, and, a, and a range of different um, attainment backgrounds. Mm. Um, and it may well be possible that there does need to be some sort of um, some at least some care and potential tweaking. Um, to make sure that you do have a, a range of attainment, um, plus some of the um, you know the issues that you've just mentioned about um, you know is it valid that a child gets to choose a class with a friend from primary school yeah. and so on? We know about the challenges of transition; those things may be important. So um, yet again, it's not simply clear cut. One of the, thinking about transition, um, one of the challenges to us, uh, both in, um, in best practice and mixed attainment uh, grouping, but also best practice in setting that, that trial too, is this notion of nurture groups okay, yeah. and um, kids going across the transition into secondary school um, sort of cosseted in this sort of safe space yeah. of the nurture group. Um, and it's really difficult because, of course, that speaks to um, a very different body of literature, the literature around the challenges of transition, which, again, we know can be um, particularly difficult for um, kids from particular backgrounds or, or, or with uh, particular sort of challenging circumstances in their learning. Um, nevertheless, it's, it's been really interesting and I think that we need urgent research on, um, on nurture groups and good practice within their operation because there is a risk that those nurture groups um, simply sort of cordon off a group of pupils for, for whom it becomes um, harder and harder to reintegrate into the uh, wider secondary school system. It's funny you mentioned that year seven point because you know most secondary schools will retest their students in some way be it on a class-based or, or school-based uh, level depending on the school and obviously if you've got a transition issue and you're a bit nervous about being in a secondary school you do badly on that exam you are then set accordingly from what you're saying you're not only more likely to be set in the bottom sets if you're disadvantaged but perhaps if you're slightly nervous if you're an anxious sort of student and don't perform as well on that first test from what you've said, the evidence of moving around in between sets and the evidence of the effectiveness of teaching, you're sort of pigeonholed from year seven. Exactly. If you haven't already been pigeonholed within primary school already. Yeah. And I guess, is that an ignorance about the transition issues? Is that not connecting? Because everyone knows there's a transition issue, and yet this practice still goes on. Why are the two not marrying up in, in, in school policy? So, so I, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is I think the, the nurture groups and transitions speak to um, a separate set of issues around um, you know, the shock of secondary schooling, mm. uh, the need for catch up, 
which again is genuine. You know, if kids haven't, for whatever reason, uh, managed to um, really get to a, a, a necessary level in terms of literacy and numeracy, for example, they're never going to uh, access properly the secondary curriculum. And it's really urgent that that remedial work is done. Mm. Uh, so there's a genuine dilemma there. Um, you know, my uh, kind of uh, um, ballpark suggestion would be that um, nurture groups in the um, first you know, initial weeks of um, secondary schooling may be good practice, certainly uh, looking after the needs of kids that can't necessarily um, easily access the secondary curriculum. You know, we must do that work. Mm. Um, if we find that um, two terms in, those kids are still sitting in the same group. They're not accessing, for example, a modern foreign language or you know the, the, yeah. the other aspects of a curriculum that the other kids are taking for granted and that therefore essentially they're becoming locked out of um, you know, the mainstream schooling experience. We, this is surely going to be detrimental. Yeah. Um, so I think that that, need, that balance needs to be thought about by schools very, very carefully. I guess the final question then is, an, is a question you're probably not going to be able to answer, is that if the government is serious about social mobility and social justice and they're looking at the school system, both in terms of uh, setting and wider, what would, what, what would your rec policy recommendation be? Right, well there we're getting much broader. So yeah. I think that these things that schools can do and look at within their own practice are really important. And there's great work going on um, right across the sector, both in schools and out, and the work of uh, organizations like the Education Endowment Foundation are absolutely fundamental here. Um, we at the Institute of Education would really hope that we are also a resource to support the system um, to develop better efficacy in, in, their, um, in, in practice and in school policy. Yeah. But schools don't operate uh, sort of as islands outside yeah. a wider social context. Um, I've already talked about the very direct link between uh, wealth and educational attainment in the UK. And this has been well documented uh, in the research as to, you know, through a whole range of uh, issues that schools can't necessarily control. Mm. Um, starting point and entry to schooling is obviously um, a key one, but also everything in terms of material financial capital and social and cultural capital that's being um, developed with uh, kids you know, um, obviously more so for middle class kids mm. as they go through the system. And if we think about the uh, sort of explosion in uptake of private tutoring, um, frantic uh, tutoring to, to take tests to get into selective schools or private Even at primary schools level, so isn't it? Yeah. You know, um, the, the um, issues around access and admissions to schools that are Ofsted outstanding. Mm. Um, you know, I could go on and on, um, you know, the edutainment opportunities, the, the enrichment opportunities and so forth, let alone knowing how to interact with the school, how to play the system and so forth. Um, so these issues are bigger than just schooling. And um, I guess what I would say is the social mobility agenda really uh, needs, the policymakers need to take a long, hard look at that. Not just the um, dominant focus on 
the kids that, for whatever reason, you know, kids from working class backgrounds who have managed to bubble up and yeah. um, achieve high attainment irrespective of, of, of the other um, factors that we've just talked about. Um, and indeed, the very fact that even with these high attaining um, kids from low socioeconomic backgrounds, we're not realising the same opportunities for them as we are for, for middle class kids. Um, if even if we put that, uh, that that sort of very narrow focus to one side, we can see that this hasn't been effective across the board on almost every indicator. Um, we're not seeing uh, greater social mobility um, either through schooling or beyond. Um, so we really need to think about why that is and the issues, I think, about opportunity hoarding for the affluent, um, why it is that they can purchase uh, advantage and, and why these um, opportunities are actually exacerbating rather than being narrowed down. I'm thinking here, for example, around internships, mm -hmm. um, personal statements in application to university, um, the issues around sort of tutoring for access to particular schools, um, the issue about admissions and, be, and, and catchments and being able to purchase your way into a good catchment and so on and so forth. I guess exclusions I think, as well? Exclusions, definitely. And I, th I think if the government's serious about these issues, they really need to start thinking about disincentivising some of these practices where financial and social capital can, can buy advantage for parents. Um, and I think, uh, you know, beyond that, in terms of what we know from the research, obviously we need to think about the early years and uh, what can be done to close the gaps that kids start school with. And we need, again, to think always about the quality of teaching and driving up that quality, which comes back to professionalisation. Very difficult at a time of recruitment crisis, mm. but nevertheless absolutely fundamental because we know not just that the quality of teaching makes the biggest difference to pupil progress, but that that's particularly true for kids from socially disadvantaged backgrounds. So you can see the importance there. I think that's a a good challenge for the system to end with. Thank you very much, Becky, for joining me. Thank you.